want to go over something here. The brother asked me a question at the bachelor fellowship, and we started feeling the Holy Ghost. I want to see if I can encapsulate this for you. None of this will be new to those who have been here for 50 years. You know that some of this has come by the grace of God through revelation of what the scripture was meaning over decades. Amen. But I still think it bears considering at this particular time. I'd like to kind of quickly go over some things. And, and some of you who, have, who keep up with the podcast, you may have heard this. But it seems appropriate that we as a church should ask what the purpose of God is for Israel, uh, not just in a spiritual sense, but what is happening in the world right now. And, and what does all of this mean? And why Israel? And, and what about Israel and such? And I'm going to go a little bit fast, um, but I ask you to come along with me and you can search these things out in, in greater granularity on your study time, and it'll take you a couple days. I don't have that much time right now, so let's go for the ride, shall we? There are a few, there are two prominent views on natural Israel in the world today. One is called replacement theology, and it holds that the church has, has so fulfilled everything I just described to you in terms of the promises, salvation, and purpose of Israel that no purpose remains for the ethnic community of the Jewish people and Israel naturally. And there is a, an answer to that that emerged, when did dispensationalism emerge with Howard in the early or late 1800s? It took off in the late 1800s, dispensationalism. There's a great paper that Brother Howard and my dad have done called Dispensing with Dispensationalism that will help you understand that doctrine with as much granularity as you require. Um, but it understandably felt and correctly felt that God did have some essential purpose for the Jewish people and the ethnic family of Israel. And so it created, in effect, uh, a parallel salvation for the Jews, where they would be saved in a different manner than the Christians would be saved. And this runs with, into a head-on collision with the words of Paul in Romans 10, when he says of the Jews, if they do not persist in their unbelief, they also will be grafted in where he makes it their problem of persistent unbelief, and he further says that what they need is to receive the same grace as you Gentiles. So this is incompatible with tons of scripture, including the idea that there is one gospel, that there is one grace, that there is one Lord, and that any other gospel, any other formula for salvation has got to be false. So we reject this, but you can read in greater detail why. That's the, the overview. So we have two views. One says there's no place left in God's purpose. Israel's been replaced. That's called replacement theology. The other says, oh, no, there's a great purpose left, but they create a new salvation, a new way, where the, God, where, where the same Messiah who rejected all the kingdoms of this world and their glory who said, my kingdom is not of this world, now suddenly he's going to take over the weapons of warfare that are carnal and not mighty through God, and he's going to establish a political reign on the earth using the Jews. This is categorically 
unbiblical, and, and it, it has been de demolished in other settings that you can explore. So we are left with a question. We don't agree with the first. We don't agree with the second. What is, is there a third view of what God's purpose is for the Jewish people, what God's plan is, and why Israel of present day even exists? Is it just a fluke? Is it an accident? Is God indifferent? What is going on? And so I want you to bear with me a little bit while we look at this. The promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. And that indicated the spirit, the walk of faith. But we cannot deny that there is a certain blessing on the ethnic family of the Jewish people. Why? I want to give you two scriptures in contrast to each other. And I want you to think of these in terms of corporate election. Does everybody know what corporate election is? Individual election means God picked you for heaven or you for hell individually and you can't have any choice in it. But corporate election is the idea that God has a community, a nation, a holy nation that is predestined and you get to decide whether you're going to be a part of it. But that decision is not apart from grace, it is by prevenient grace. So we take issue with the Arminians who act like it is up to man's willy-nilly choice, but we take more issue with the Calvinists who act like God is picking some for heaven and some for hell, when the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And he, he, sa he is the savior of the whole world. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins and not of ours only, but those of the whole world. Come whosoever will, etc., etc. I would have gathered your children together, but you were not willing. So corporate election is the idea that God is putting his favor on a corporate people, that two nations are in her womb. So there's an, a blessing on the ethnic group, and I want you to, to consider two scriptures in light of the idea of corporate election. The first scripture is found in Matthew chapter 10, and the second scripture is found in Acts chapter 1. And I want you to consider the juxtaposition of these two scriptures and why the change. Here we go. Jesus is confronted by the woman from Tyre. This is Matthew 10. And she is asking for him to give her pretty much what he's been giving the Jewish people throughout his ministry. But he says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he tells her it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Ouch. And she says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. I do not believe that she was so persuasive that he changed his mind. I believe that she acted on a word of rebuke and treated it as a word of faith and changed her position and moved into the camp of the blessed. 
because he compliments her, as he does another Gentile, as having great faith, faith that even presumably exceeds the faith of Israel. Showing that it is her faith that moves her from the camp of the rejected into the community of the blessed. I am Yahweh and I change not. He's not going to say, I will not do this. I will do this. He speaks something. She changes. She receives that transformative word and she travels through her steps of faith into the camp of the blessed. Much was imputed to her, but she had the orientation of mind to be called an Israelite indeed. This is the story of Ruth. This is the story of Rahab. This is the story of Cornelius. This is the story of Abraham. It is faith that moves her into the camp of the blessed. But here's this statement. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now here's the counter statement. On the Mount of Olives, he says, after... Can everybody say after? After After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. Here it is in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. So here we have limited favor in corporate election in Matthew 10, and then we have the game changer. We have the Holy Spirit introduced that still maintains corporate election, but invites all people of every background into that community. So I would say that God's favor on the family of the Jews is in part tied to the fact that the Holy Spirit was not available to all people. It had not yet been given. Jesus was not yet glorified. And yet we maintain that from the beginning, his intention was not exclusive for the descendants of Abraham because what was his promise to Abraham? In you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. He had to establish a landing ground where the Messiah could come and from that cultivated field, that embassy of heaven on earth, spread and bless all the families of the earth. So it was never exclusionary. It was always with the view of Messiah's coming and the view of the cultivation that had to happen in order for him to come to a people who would receive him, even if only a remnant. We say that the Jews rejected him, and that is true if we're speaking in broad terms, but it was the Jews who accepted him. It was only Jews who were on the day of Pentecost. And for the following 15 to 20 years, it was strictly a Jewish church. This was to fulfill the prophecy spoken of in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said that the Lord was going to pick a remnant. He said like an olive tree that is plucked clean where only two or three or four olives remain in the upper branches. That will be God's remnant. 
And he said, that will be the holy seed as the root in the ground. So God focused on the ethnic family of Israel and he showed them favor. His favor was not a, an unavoidable salvation because in Romans 9, when he talks about this election that came to the Jewish people, he ends the whole thing by saying they are not saved. So after rationalizing why God showed them all this special favor, he shows us it did not equal salvation individually, but it did corporately. <laughs> he just says that the 99% who rejected are no longer Israel, and the 1%, they are Israel. <laughs> For the next 200 years, the church still considered itself to be a Jewish entity. Even though it had Gentiles all over. And all the world, the Roman Empire viewed Christianity as, as a, a Jewish sect. sect. Yeah. Many of the bishops, even a majority of the bishops, uh, up into and through the 100s, in key places, most influential places, they were Jewish. They still viewed it as a Jewish sect. It, it was changed a, radically around the late 100s, early 200s. There was Latin Christianity, there, there was Greek Christianity, there was Hebrew Christianity, and Longenecker said the only one that completely disappeared was Hebrew Christianity. But originally it was the only one that appeared. <laughs> so God picked a people he could work with. He picked them in part on their natural gifting. He didn't pick Esau for hell. He picked Jacob for his purpose. And that was not an unavoidable individual salvation. That was an, a corporate salvation. And individually, they would be part of it or reject. They would be part of it ethnically, but they would be part of the salvation by choice of whether they would operate in faith. But then when the Holy Spirit comes, we have a whole new dimension. But Paul says... He says in, in Romans there, in, in his discourse, in Romans 11, he says that he uses the metaphor of a tree. And he uses the metaphor of a root to a tree. And he says, do not boast against the root, for you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Amen? And then he says, he shows us that the, there was a cultivated tree and, an, and a wild tree. And he shows us that the cultivated tree was the Jewish community. And he says that branches were cut off so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. And he makes this statement. He says, if their severance was mercy for the Gentiles, then what will their return be but life from the dead. We're going to get into that a little bit, but I've taught a couple times on the revelation, the insight, the, the, the meaning, let's say that, behind Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, the temple, and the fig tree. Some of you have heard that before, but let's go over it quickly. About 48 hours before his death, or about 24 hours before his arrest, Jesus is heading from Bethany up to the temple. So it's a, it's a climb, and the Bible says he's going up, and he comes to a fig tree. And 
He goes to the fig tree expecting to find fruit, but he finds none. And when he gets to the temple, what's he going to do? He's going to cleanse it. He's going to show his most ardent display of displeasure and zeal as he cleanses the temple. He chases out the money changers. He chases out the animals and he brings in the children, the blind and the lame. And he says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Okay. And and so he's going to have this challenge. But while he's heading up to the temple, he comes to this tree and it's a fig tree. Now, Throughout scripture, even in, in, in Luke 22 um, and, and also in other scriptures, the fig tree is often symbolic of the Jewish people. Amen. In Hosea 9.10, the, the Lord says, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame instead. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. So we would agree that Hosea is making your forefathers, the people of Israel, as like a fig tree that becomes detestable. You with me? In Jeremiah 8, 13, it says, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord, speaking of Israel. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given to them will come to pass in terms of judgment. So we have the absence of fruit, again a fig tree, again the absence of fruit, and the word withering and judgment all together. So Jesus comes to this fig tree, and he, it says that he is expecting to find fruit, but it is not the season for fruit. <laughs> and instead, what he sees is showy leaves of externalism. And he pronounces a curse that fulfills Jeremiah 8. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again forever. I would argue that this has nothing to do with a fig tree, nor of a miracle suspended in space for our titillation. I would argue that this is a direct metaphor of what is happening between God and the Sinai system ensconced in that beautiful Herod-built temple up on the mountain they're climbing. He arrives at the temple, and he begins to display his displeasure... And he tells him, you've made my father's house of den of thieves. And what happens when he begins to cleanse the temple? They come to him with a question. What, is, what are their questions? They ask two questions related. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So in short, we could say that they were utterly clueless as to what God's authority looked like. They could not recognize the authority of God in human form. Now, when they ask this, what is Jesus' immediate question? Do you think he's just trying to stump them? Just trying like, oh yeah, you know how to argue, I know how to argue too. Let's, Let's change the subject. Do you think he changes the subject? I don't think so at all. 
He takes them back to a conversation with John the Baptist that interestingly pivoted on the metaphor of a tree. You remember that when they came to John the Baptist, all of Judea was going out to be baptized by him, repenting of their sins. And then he says, John looked up and saw the Pharisees coming to him to be baptized. And what does he say to them? What does John say to the Pharisees? He greets them with a a less than favorable term, you brood of vipers. (laughs) He asks them a question, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He doesn't believe in their sincerity. And then he gives them a requirement. Something that must take place before they can be baptized. He says, go, get away. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then what does he say? For even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire and burned. So Jesus has just cursed the fig tree, walks into the temple. They don't know God's authority. And he immediately takes their lack of recognition of God's authority as proof positive that they have not come to the repentance that John told them about. And so he's basically saying, remember when you wanted to be baptized? Remember when that minister told you something to do that was necessary? Let's talk about whether the baptism was of God or not. Because if it wasn't of God, why did you go out and seek it, was the next question. If it was of God, why didn't you pay the price to get it, was the next question. What happened? (laughs) Why are we still here? So we're learning a couple things. One, the fruit of repentance would have been the recognition of God's authority to cleanse their house. Two, they were willing to go out And in front of all of Judea, ask this guy in camel's hair and speaking strangely and eating grasshoppers. They were willing to ask for baptism and undergo immersion, but they were not willing to pay the price of repentance that would have removed human fleshly authority from the throne and put the Spirit of God in its place. And so he tells them, neither will I tell you as if they did know but are refusing to say and so he says I'm not going to tell you okay so then what happens the next day what happens Jesus is coming back up to Jerusalem the next morning and I believe this is the morning of his arrest it's within that that uh, couple days he's coming back up to Jerusalem and what happens the disciples see the tree that had been withered and what is what do they say Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is already withered. They're shocked. And Jesus answered to them and said, have faith in God. He doesn't say, I know, I know, it's terrible, but let's keep going, guys. He says, have faith in God. In Matthew's version, he says, you will do more than what was done to this fig tree but you will even say to this mountain. The key that I want to point out here is that we often translate this or interpret this as you will say to the mountain in your life, which is true, but that is not what he says. He says you will say to this mountain. Here are these guys, 12 of them, and their teacher, the Messiah, 
is about to be stripped naked, beat beyond recognition of a human being, and nailed to a cross until dead. And he is trying to tell them that this system that rejects the authority of God in human form, that rejects the spirit, it may look like a mountain, but you, through your obedience and the exertion and declaration of God's word, are going to move that mountain into the sea. He is trying to give them the faith to do what they did when they stood before the Sanhedrin after being beaten and said, you judge whether it is better for us to obey man rather than God. But as for us, we will not stop speaking in this man's name. That was speaking to the mountain. That was dislodging the mountain. Stretch out your hand as you perform great signs and wonders through the name of your holy child, Jesus, in Acts 4. This is what he was giving them the gumption to believe in. What is the mountain that he is speaking of? Paul in Galatians 4, 26. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise, which is what Jesus called the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wait in the city until you receive the promise of my father. That's what Peter called it as well. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is Mount Sinai. You will say to this mountain, this mountain that has taken and placed flesh, exalted the flesh, and what man can do apart from God has exalted it above the work of God through Christ. You will say to this mountain, one mountain, one covenant is Mount Sinai and bears children who are slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to present-day Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Now, think of the, even the phraseology here in slavery with her children. We know that when he finished this curse, he goes and weeps from the Mount of Olives. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those sent to you, how often I would have God is speaking of his intention that conflicts with their free choice. How often I would have gathered your children together, these children who are enslaved. I would have gathered your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. How were they not willing? By what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? They were unwilling to hear and recognize and submit to the authority of the Spirit over the will of man, over the will of fallen flesh. This is, of course, substantiated throughout his discourse in Galatians 2 and into chapter 3. In chapter 3, he says, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. What does he say to the fig tree? You're cursed. So this showy fig tree represents the law system that had come to take the place of the Spirit of God. And it's saying, it's over. 
No one will ever eat fruit from this system again forever. It's finished. It's done. It's just an instrument now to separate yourself from the immediate appearance of the one you claim to serve. It's just adulation over the shadows when the one who casts the shadow is speaking to you by his spirit. So he says it's going to be cast into the sea. I believe Isaiah 60 and 5 and Revelation 17 and 15 indicate that this is speaking of the Gentiles. And he is saying that this mountain is going to be, it's speaking of the dispersion of the Jewish people in 70 AD and 135 respectively. But God has given a new birth. Just as Moses went up on the mountain and came back with the law, gave gifts of the law, Jesus ascended on high and he came back on the day when the law was given, the day of Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 may have died at the giving of the law, but 3,000 were born again at the giving of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so there was a new expression of Israel. There was a new fulfillment. There was a new purpose altogether. The fulfillment of everything that had been given through Abraham and Moses. So what is the purpose today of Israel? And why, why has God allowed it to be reborn as it has? We know that in terms of salvation, Israel is not invalid it is just now spiritual, not ethnic. Amen? It is still valid. It is simply spiritual and not ethnic. But what about the ethnic Jews? What is the purpose? What is the place? Well, let's go back to this passage in Romans 11, where he says, if their severance was mercy for the Gentiles, what will their return be except life from the dead? It's critical to note that when he says, when he talks about who benefited from their severance, it was the Gentiles. And he hasn't really introduced a change. He, the one who benefited was the church, the Gentiles. So he says, their grafting back in will be life from the dead. And we ask, what does that mean? Does that mean that it will be life for the dead for, for the Jews who are grafted back in? Well, certainly that. But in the equation of the sentence, it's more than that. He's saying that their grafting back in is going to correspond to the restoration at the end time. When the Jews start coming back, that's going to be a sign that life from the dead is now coming to the dry bones church. It was they who reaped the benefit of their severance, and it is they who will reap the benefit of their return. Why, you ask? Why? What will that bring to the church? Well, it'll bring much. It'll reintroduce the root, not commonly called Hebraic roots, but the root of Abrahamic faith. It will reintroduce the root that still supports us, the root of a proper view of God not filtered by Greek thinking, the root of seeing salvation in the context of a community with a shared history, the root of Davidic prayer and praise in what James called the restoration of the tabernacle of David, 
The root of suffering, the suffering servant and, the, and suffering with a redemptive purpose. There, there are so much the root of wisdom as what builds the house as a holistic relational perspective instead of the analytical Greek Aristotelian perspective. So there's so much that the Jewish perspective is going to bring back to the church. And, and you say, you know, if we were, if we were, in, if we were a large congregation, say as, as large as we are, and there were no ministers in this church, there were no leaders, you would pray that God would raise up leaders. And what you would be praying for is remarkable gifts to come and lead God's people. You'd be praying for his ascent to result in the giving of gifts that the church desperately needs. So when we say that the Jewish people are endowed with special gifts from God, it's not insignificant. They are going to bring gifts, gifts of truth that I just described, but also gifts embodied in them as a people. <laughs> they represent less than 1% of the world's population, but 13.5% of the world's highest awards. Do you think there might be some gifting there? What is the church going to be when those gifts that are in them from their birth, that are in them from the promises of Abraham until now, when those people start coming and filling places of leadership again in the church, in the, in the Gentile church, it's going to make a huge difference. So what does it mean for Israel to have been reborn? Why did that happen? In Micah 2, he says that he will gather Israel together in a fold and that they will be so tightly compacted in this fold that they will be loud, they will be noisy before the breach maker goes before them and opens the way. This is an image of how God is going to gather people together in a geographic location and then send the Messiah just before the Messiah comes so that a quick work can be done. So let me ask you this. Can you deny that Jesus tapped into the natural expectations of the apostles and the zealots and the people of his day? In John 6, they tried to forcibly make him king, didn't they? Simon, one of his own apostles, was a former zealot, wasn't he? Nathaniel was looking for the kingdom of God, the king of Israel, wasn't he? So Jesus tapped into those things. And it seems that even the apostles, Peter, James, John, and the other 12, it seems that they did not have the correct framework about the nature of the kingdom before Pentecost. It seems that when he rejects the crown, that he offends them. Then he speaks words that send them all home, and only the 12 are left, and he asks them if they're going to leave also. And they say, no, you have the words of eternal life. But they are pressuring him. At times, his own brothers say to him, go show yourself. Let yourself be seen. And repeatedly, people say to, him, say to him things like, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So I want to ask you, who besides Jesus saw that it was going to be a spiritual kingdom where 3,000 were added to the church on one day? 
Who saw that it was going to be tongues of fire and unknown languages and an outpouring of glory on an, in an upper room? Who saw that besides Jesus? None. Nobody saw it besides Jesus. So he built on their natural childish expectations. He oriented them toward a spiritual heavenly promise. The last thing that mankind uttered to the Lord before he ascended was, we don't know what the kingdom's going to be like, and we don't understand anything of what's just happened. <laughs> That's a paraphrase. What did they say? What were the last words? Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> is it at this time that you'll kick these Romans out? And what did he say? Oh, guys, I've explained this. No, it's not going to be that. It's going to be a, a spiritual kingdom. They probably would have gone home and never even come to the upper room. He kind of punts. He says, it's not for you to know times and seasons. But after that, the Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea in Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And they saw him go up. And he said in John 6 that they might have even gotten offended when they saw him go up. But they saw him go up, and they're still gazing up into heaven going, and the angels are there going, why are you looking into heaven? You want to say, well, where else would we be looking? But the angels thought, you should be looking toward Jerusalem because something is fixing to come when you guys can become of one mind and one accord. So, God has used the rebirth, the longing in millions of hearts, the longing for a homeland, the longing for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And he has held up that promise like a great magnet over all the nations of the earth, over Europe after the Holocaust, over South America, over Arabia, and he has pulled the hearts of those who still burn for Zion into the national land of Israel. And he's done it for the same reason. So that at just the right time, the breach maker can bring the outpouring of true power. The Israel nation is merely a human expectation, but it is going to result in a spiritual fulfillment. It is for the salvation of his people. It is to reveal himself, Yahweh, to reveal himself and show them exactly what they've been seeking. So Israel's rebirth has a profound purpose in God's economy. And the coming in of the Jewish people to the church is going to be the sign that life from the dead is happening in the valley of dry bones. And I believe God has allowed us, even in this congregation, to be a foretaste, a sign. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are for signs in Israel, Isaiah said. I believe God has allowed us to be that sign. That this church, it's some of its earliest members, were Jews, amen, who brought gifts that this body needed, amen, brought history and perspective. And when these things happen, when the, the Jews start coming back, what we're going to see 
is what is prophesied in the book of Revelations. Two witnesses, corporate expressions that correspond to the two olive trees in Zechariah. Two sons of fresh anointing are going to stand again upon the earth. The Gentile and the Jew together are going to stand upon the earth. And it is not going to be almost like the the age of revival of Azusa Street or almost as good as the age of revival uh, in the Welsh revival. It's not going to be almost like the first great awakening or near the second or third. It is going to be an unprecedented restoration and move of God's spirit such as the world has not seen ever. Yes, it will be just like in the book of Acts, but on a scale that makes that seem small by comparison. The same powers that they had in the book of Acts, these two witnesses are going to have if you read it. And you say, but, but Brother Asi, it says that those two witnesses are going to lie dead in the streets. But I ask you, why? Why are those two witnesses going to lie dead in the streets? Because they are going to be so powerful, so effective, so instrumental in the purpose of God that the scripture tells us the devil is going to conclude that his time is short. And so he's going to get really mad, which we call the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is going to be a compliment on a church that is becoming so effective, the devil believes if it's not cut off, there's not going to be anybody not part of it. <laughs> his wrath is great because his time is short. His time is short because that final witness is so effective, so powerful, that a revival is sweeping across the whole world. So I don't think we're coming to the twilight of Christianity. Except if you mean that at evening time there will be light. And upon those who dwelt in the valley of the shadow of death, a light is going to dawn. I believe we are coming into, we are amping up for the most exciting time in church history, in Christian history. I believe that all the virgins whose lamps are going out, those are all the denominations who will not even exist in another generation. They will not even exist a fraction of them will exist. Mark my words. They will not. They are going extinct because they do not have the oil of the Holy Spirit burning in their lamps. But there are going to be those. There is going to be a remnant who says, Lord, you're going to find faith when you come on the earth. There's going to be a people still here. Amen. There's going to be a remnant. Amen. And that remnant is not going to barely hang on until the Lord returns. That remnant is going to reach unparalleled witness before the tribulation begins. And then when the tribulation comes, we're going to be barely hanging on and praying that he hurries up. But hey, I'm looking for the first part and the last part. The middle part is just the cost of being that, of, of, of operating in that much glory and power. I know we covered a lot of ground. And I don't expect that it'll all stick. It may not. But I hope you see some themes that God will start to fill. Amen. And I hope you see as the Hirsch's in their 80s and the Steins in their late 70s and 
Brother Zafrir, who's been, us, been with us 40 years, when you see what God has done, we can have the faith that even though it's getting grim over there in Israel, he's got a plan. He has got a plan. Amen. And the sheep are in the fold. And they're just waiting for a witness that can provoke them to jealousy. Amen. They're not looking for words. <laughs> but when, we, when they see our love and our oneness, they're going to know that God sent Jesus. Not because it's some figment or historical fact, but because they're encountering it in a people. Paul said to the church, you are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, which is what Adam said to his wife. And that's what, that's what Israel's got to see, the body of Christ that is truly Jesus upon the earth, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And then they're going to say, not I believe in a historical fact, but I have seen that God is alive among his people. And wait a minute, we're his people. Let him be alive among us. Thank you, Jesus. Let's take a minute and pray for God's people, the Jewish people, and for the reconciliation of these two witnesses at this time. Pray prayers of faith. Amen. To bind and to loose. Things predestined before the foundation of the world. Let it be, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Send comfort, send healing, send grace. But send a hunger for your spirit like never before, Lord. Open a door of hope and salvation.